I'm Joel Chasnoff, and this is Inside Israel. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Inside Israel. It is December 19th, 2023. For those of you who are new to Inside Israel, really, it's three goals I have for all of you who are out there listening and watching. One is to bring you the news out of Israel, but from the perspective of Israelis. It's really important to me that we not just hear oh, the headlines, cool. but that we understand how the events in Israel are actually affecting the people who live there. Daily life has been changed in so many ways. In other ways, it's very much the same in business as usual. So I want to let you know how Israelis are actually impacted by the news. The second big takeaway for all of you is to share news stories that you might not hear because they're maybe too small or insignificant relative to other stories in American, North American media. So it doesn't make it onto the outlets that you're familiar with. But these are big stories in Israel, the ones that Israelis are talking about. So that's the second goal is to bring you the stories you wouldn't ordinarily hear. And number three is that sense of community I've mentioned before. It means a lot to me that we can have a group of people who come together every week with a shared interest, the same passion for Israel. It certainly does not mean that you always will agree with me. You know, it's funny, the longer I do this, the more I'm becoming, uh, I guess, honest with who I actually am. When I first began about two months ago doing these broadcasts, I thought I would keep it completely neutral, apolitical, that I wouldn't share my views at all. But I think it's kind of impossible to talk about a topic like this and not have some of your personality and personal views leak out. So, alas, you're getting to know me as well the deeper we go in. But I think that's okay. We don't ask for agreement all the time. It's a complicated topic, and I think we all have our opinions. But if we can come away with a little more understanding and nuance, that would make me happy. And just a short story about where I am right now. As I said, I'm in Marble Falls, Texas, my home away from my home in Israel. And uh, this is pretty much the end of my Israel 75 live tour. For all of 2023, I was on this massive tour, probably 40 cities in all, promoting my book, Israel 201, which was written in conjunction with Israel's 75th birthday. And my last official date on that tour was last night. Now, the tour continues in January and February, but it's no longer Israel's 75th. So it's a little bit of a bittersweet ending. And uh, I went for a walk today in Texas out in nature. There's a lot of hills and trails and uh, met a new neighbor. And he asked me where I was from. And I hesitated. Usually I say Israel, but today I actually said Chicago, which is where I grew up. I, I, something has changed. I, I feel that I'm not the only one who's a little more hesitant to talk about where we're from, especially when we're in parts of the country where we're not necessarily familiar with all the people and we don't want to necessarily open that can of worms and we don't know how people will react. So I must say down here, most people are very supportive of Israel. They even have American and Israeli flags flag flying outside their doorsteps uh, because they are very hardcore Christian and support Israel for that reason. But at the same time, it did occur to me that I hesitated and actually said I was not from Israel, from somewhere else, just to sort of avoid the conversation that could come. But that's another reason why these conversations with you are so important to me. So that actually relates to the title of today's broadcast. And if you've been with us a while, you know that I usually don't give a title to the broadcast, but today I feel it's appropriate. And the title for today's episode is, I Cannot Go Home. And I'm going to share four stories with you, four stories that have happened in Israel over the past week. And as I think you'll see, they all relate to that idea of, I cannot go home. The first story is one you probably heard about. It happened last Wednesday, the 13th of December in Israel. This is when nine Israeli soldiers were killed in what turned out to be an ambush set up by Hamas. A number of soldiers went into a building. One of the thoughts was that there could be hostages in this building. But they also knew that there was a lot of Hamas infrastructure in there, tunnel openings. They went inside the building, and then they immediately, these four soldiers, lost connection, lost communication with the other members of their platoon. And the real fear was that they had been kidnapped by Hamas. So the rest of the platoon sent a number of soldiers into the building to look for them. And when they were in the building, the building collapsed. It turned out that the building had been booby-trapped, set up by Hamas. 
to lure these soldiers in, the building collapsed and nine soldiers were killed. And as I've mentioned before, uh, in Israel, we take the death of every soldier extremely seriously. There is no such thing as a soldier dying and it just becomes, you know, a small paragraph on page 10 of the newspaper. It is front page news. And to hear about nine soldiers dying in one incident is what we call in Hebrew makkah, like a real, more than a slap, a, a, a hit. It's like you've been beaten emotionally, makkah. Uh, an injury. And the Israeli public was distraught after hearing that nine soldiers had been killed in one ambushed incident. And what made it all the more painful are a few things. First of all, this happened in Jabalaya. Jabalaya is in central Gaza. And we actually had another horrible incident happen in Jabalaya in 2014 as part of uh, Operation Cast Lead Suk Eitan. Seven Golani infantry soldiers were killed when I believe it was an RPG was fired at their uh, armored personnel carrier and it was able to penetrate and get inside and seven soldiers were killed in one incident in Jabalaya. And to go back to Jabalaya, and these were Golani soldiers this time as well that were caught in the ambush, it brought back a painful memory for many Israelis and also raised many questions. We were in Jabalaya nine years ago. Now we're back and nothing has changed. And that made led to an element of frustration and anger as well. Not feelings against the war, but just feelings of how much time has passed and how much Hamas was able to strengthen itself and keep continuing uh, building its arsenal and its plans against Israel in that time. Another aspect of the story, which is really important to point out, is that one of the soldiers who was killed is, as we call it in Hebrew, the Magad, the Mefaked Dudi, the battalion commander of the 13th Infantry Battalion. One of the battalions of the Golani Infantry Brigade is the 13th Battalion, and the battalion commander was killed. He was one of those who rushed in to look for his soldiers. And aside from being absolutely crushing and also militarily very difficult to lose one of our best soldiers, a battalion commander, I just want to point out that there are not many militaries in the world where the battalion commander himself would rush into the building to rescue his soldiers. In most militaries, the battalion commander would be back at headquarters, sitting behind a computer screen in some sort of bunker, a basement. Uh, but in Israel, it really is the ethos of Aharai, after me. And the battalion commanders are down there in the field with the soldiers themselves. I mentioned this in, in an earlier broadcast of uh, Inside Israel that the battalion commander of the 53rd Armored Battalion, which is one of the battalions in the brigade that I served in, the 188th Armored Brigade, our battalion commander of the 53rd was killed in the first week of the war, an Arab Druze lieutenant colonel named Salman Habaka. So you really do see this in Israel, that very high officers are not sitting back, but they are on the front lines, and they are the ones who rush into the building to look for their own soldiers. So it really was... Um, it really was a, a horrible incident that we had nine ambushed. And someone asked, what's the significance of them being Golani infantry? I'll give you a small insight into the army right now. Uh, typically, you have three infantry brigades, Golani, Givati, and Tzanchanim, which are paratroopers. Actually, come to think of it, there's a fourth, which is Nachal, and a more recent one called Kfir. So I guess all in all, you have really five infantry brigades. And they really are, for the most part, interchangeable. There's nothing that anyone does that others don't do. The one exception being paratroopers, who obviously, true to their name, jump out of planes. Uh, although... It's even been debated in Israel whether paratroopers should jump out of planes. We haven't actually sent paratroopers into battle from planes and helicopters, uh, I think, since uh, we could look it up, but maybe 56 in Sinai. It's not common. It's more of just a tradition at this point. And many have said, yeah, it's a great tradition, but it's a waste of money. We don't need to be paying for uh, jump training for the entire paratroopers brigade, when at the end of the day, they are not going to actually jump. But those five infantry brigades that I named, Golani, Givati, 
Kfir, Nachal, and paratroopers, uh, there are very much, for the most part, similar. They all have their special forces, Sayeret, Reconnaissance Golani, Sayeret, Nachal, uh, but day to day, the soldiers are the same. Golani just happens to be the ones who uh, were assigned to this part of Gaza, and both in 2014 and this time around. Uh, so that is the first story I want to share with you. It was a huge, tragic incident in Israel. I'm sure a lot of you heard about it here, but I wanted to give that sort of extra nuance about Jabalaya having a memory for so many of us, and the fact that the battalion commander of the 13th Battalion was killed, and the fact that such a high-up officer was taken from us. Well, two days later, there was another very large incident, which I know got coverage here. Uh, this is the incident in which three Israeli hostages were fired upon by Israeli troops who mistook them for Hamas. The more we learn about the story, the more horrible it becomes. It turns out that these three hostages had written on a piece of cloth had SOS in English, and then in Hebrew, shalosh chatufin, which means three hostages. So on this big piece of poster-sized cloth, they had written SOS and save us and three hostages inside in Hebrew, and they wrote that with leftover food. They didn't have paint. Originally, they thought it was spray paint. It turned out it was leftover food that they were able to collect and smear uh, on this canvas and the IDF had seen this sign on the building a few days before. And they assumed that it was an ambush, that it was another trick by Hamas to try to lure them into the building. And if you could think of what would be the perfect way to lure a bunch of Israeli soldiers into a building, you really couldn't imagine a better way to do it than to write on a piece of a canvas three hostages inside in Hebrew, and then come save us, SOS. Uh, that would definitely bring the IDF in. So it turns out the IDF did see this sign and assumed that it was bait, that it was a lure to try to get them into an ambush. Um, but it was later discovered that this was indeed written by those three hostages, and they used forensic, forensics to find out if the hostages were actually in that building at one point, and it turns out they were. Those three hostages were in that building. So it turns out that here's what happened. They uh, emerged in daylight. This was Friday during the day in daylight. These three hostages came out. One of them, I should point out, is Bedouin. So two of them were Jewish-Israeli. One of them was Bedouin. They were working together. They had their shirts off, and you can understand why. They wanted to make clear that they had no suicide bombs strapped to them. We're not holding any weapons. They had a makeshift white flag, probably a t-shirt or some other cloth that they had uh, were able to wave. And they shouted in Hebrew, Hatzilu, meaning save us, um, and made clear, as clear as they could, that they were Israeli hostages. And they were shot by a sniper who immediately upon seeing them shouted, Mechabel, Mechabel, which means terrorist, terrorist, and shot two of them. The third was able, I think the third was shot as well, but was able to get back in the building, uh, but later died of his wounds. So all three of them were shot and killed. And you can imagine how heartbreaking this was for Israelis. I mean, all we want is to get our hostages out. And here we had this opportunity to bring three hostages home. And if there's anyone who is going to do it, it is the Israeli army. Uh, and here, we ended up killing them instead. So those are the facts on the ground, but now I wanna go into the deeper story and what do we make of this? As soon as I heard this story, it occurred to me that the headline could very easily have been 10 IDF soldiers killed in ambush by Hamas. Hamas has tried this before. There have been instances where they wrote on buildings, hostages inside, in Hebrew, to try to lure the IDF in. They have booby-trapped buildings. You got to keep in mind this incident with the three hostages took place less than 48 hours after the nine soldiers were killed in that ambushed building. And you can understand why 
a soldier in this situation would see three civilians emerging, even if they had their hands up and were waving their white flag, you could see why the suspicion would be that that was actually Hamas. The scenario is very easy to imagine that these three supposed hostages would come out, yell in Hebrew, we're Israeli, soldiers would come toward them to try to rescue them, but in the building nearby would be Hamas gunmen and surrounding would be Hamas gunmen or popping out of tunnels. And as soon as a collection of soldiers would come together, they would fire upon them and kill nine, 10 more Israeli soldiers. So before we rush to judgment against the soldier and or soldiers who fired at the hostages, we need to remember what circumstances they were operating under. Two days before, other Israeli soldiers had been ambushed in this building. Hamas has tried this tactic of pretending they were hostages to lure the IDF into traps. You really can understand why they opened fire, even if they were shouting in Hebrew. One of the big takeaways from October 7th was that the terrorists not only were wearing IDF uniforms, they were shouting in Hebrew in what survivors have said was perfect Hebrew with no accent. So the idea that these freed hostages, escaped hostages were speaking Hebrew, it, it really isn't enough for us to say, ah, they were clearly Israeli. Now, I'm not saying it's not horrible what happened, but what I am saying is I think we can all understand how this could have happened. Now, immediately after, the chief of staff, Herzi Alevi, went into Gaza and he briefed the troops and he, he made it clear that this is actually against IDF protocol, that the protocol of the IDF is to not fire upon anyone who has their hands up and is waving a white flag. Anyone, a former Hamas militant or Ham a current Hamas militant, certainly a Jewish hostage, anyone who has their hands up and is waving a white flag, the policy of the IDF is not to fire at that person. And what he said to them specifically was, which in English means take two seconds. He emphasized that when we think about combat, we think about our arms, our weapons, our legs. What we need to also remember is that we have a moach, a mind. And he urged the soldiers he talked to, knowing that his message would get out to everyone, he urged the soldiers to take two seconds and think before pulling the trigger in situations like this. Now, another reason that this happened, it's come out, is that simply the IDF never imagined that such a scenario would exist. Soldiers all across the Israeli army who are serving in Gaza have said that one of their hopes is that they and their platoon mates will rescue a hostage. That is the, the holy grail of service in Gaza right now. If you could rescue a hostage, it would fill these soldiers with such a sense of mission. And so the idea that they would mistakenly shoot one of their own is heartbreaking to the soldiers as well. But part of the problem we realized is that no one took into account the possibility that hostages escaped hostages would be roaming around through Gaza. I think it was always assumed that if they were to rescue hostages, they would find them tied up in a room or held in a tunnel. That was always the scenario that we were thinking about. And this brings to mind the idea of failure of imagination. This is not the first time since October 7th that we have been confronted with what can only be described as a failure of imagination. It's not just a matter of thinking outside the box. We need to have an entirely new box. Because when you say think outside the box, that still assumes that the box is the same. We, when I say we, I mean Israel, needs to completely reimagine the circumstances that we are operating under, both with regards to Hamas in Gaza and in Gaza itself. You know, it's come out, it's pretty clear that we had all the intelligence we needed to prevent October 7th. 
the question the week after October 7th was, how did we miss this? How did the intelligence get past us? And as time has gone on, we've realized we had all the intelligence we needed. We had a document that Hamas made up called Jericho Wall, which described in detail exactly what we were going to do, what they were going to do to us, breaking through the fence, using motorbikes and white pickup trucks to capture Israelis and bring them back into Gaza. The plan was laid out before us. Our soldiers on the border had seen Hamas training and rehearsing exactly what they did. And yet we couldn't believe it. We couldn't imagine a scenario where Hamas would actually have the gall to pull it off or the strength to pull it off. So once again, we're seeing a failure of imagination here. And I feel, to be honest with you, that Israel has lost something. You know, in the early days of Israel, we were able to imagine all these different scenarios and defend ourselves with uh, very clever tactics, often being proactive. And in this case, I think we've gotten so strong and we've gotten a bit complacent with the technology we have and the size and skill of our army that we've failed to imagine some of the things that our enemies are capable of. And we've also failed to imagine how the battlefield looks inside Gaza. Um, so I think, I think a lot, there's a lot of introspection going on right now in the IDF as the soldiers and the officers who are high up are really trying to hold some very conflicting ideas in their mind. The idea that anytime we hear or see Hebrew in Gaza, on the one hand, that's a signal that we could be lured into a trap because Hamas does this. But on the other hand, we have to be aware that people we see in Gaza could be one of our own. And that really complicates the battle even more. Uh, but it's something that Israel does take very seriously in terms of this ethical code about of not firing upon those with their hands up. And we saw that happen in Israel a few weeks ago with the shooting of Yuval Kastelman, who is an Israeli Jew who prevented a terrorist attack from being worse than it actually was by shooting the two perpetrators. But then he was killed by Israeli soldiers who just returned from Gaza. He had his hands in the air. He threw his gun to the ground and said, I'm... Israeli, Jewish, don't shoot, and they shot him anyway. So what we are seeing right now is a little bit of a confusion with the code of conduct in battle, and the chief of staff made clear this week. He took responsibility for it. He said the idea failed, and he made clear that from now on, when hands are up, it doesn't matter who it is. If hands are up and they're unarmed, we don't shoot. I'm afraid that we could see scenarios down the road where Hamas takes advantage of this and uses these two stories of the ambushed building and the three escaped hostages to their advantage and tries to set up future scenarios where they lure the IDF to believe that there are hostages and ambush them. Obviously, I hope this doesn't happen, but I think I am and a lot of Israelis are concerned that this will actually give Hamas new ideas for how to work against us. Regarding hostages, I do want to touch on that as well, on this idea of I cannot go home. Israel right now is saying that they welcome new negotiations for the release of hostages. The president of Israel, Herzog, declared in a meeting to foreign diplomats, all the foreign diplomats who are serving in Israel had a meeting with the president, Herzog, and he said publicly that Israel welcomes the idea of a new truce, something that would release more, if not all, of the hostages. The word is that Israel right now is focused on getting out the remaining women and children, as well as the elderly and the sick. There, uh, We have evidence that there are some hostages who are extremely ill, perhaps even close to death. I don't know if you saw this, but Hamas released a video yesterday of three very elderly Israeli men who are being held hostage. I think two of them are in their 80s. And uh, the IDF pointed out that this is yet again psychological torture to be doing this. Um, but we do have elderly women and children still in Gaza, and that would be the next round that Israel wants released. Now, on the other hand, Hamas has said that there will be no hostage negotiation until the operation the IDF operation in Gaza ends. 
completely. Now, I don't know how seriously to take that. I don't know if that is Hamas just grandstanding and trying to say that they will not negotiate or if this is one of those uh, things that they're saying publicly, but uh, down you know, in the back channels that they actually would negotiate for the release of more hostages. I could certainly see how Hamas would want another ceasefire. From what I hear about the war, and we'll talk about the war for a second, Hamas really is being pummeled, and the IDF is making great progress against Hamas. Uh, at the same time, um, I've said this before, that I don't know how many more hostages we are going to get out. One of the reasons being that I think some of them have been so badly mistreated that Hamas doesn't want their stories going out to the world. And so it has to be careful about what stories do get let out. Uh, some of these, you know, some of the hostages that have been released already are already speaking about the conditions they were in. Um, one of them was on 60 Minutes this past week, and she described how she lived in fear every single moment and that even at the end when she seemed happy and waved goodbye to her captors and that that was all forced upon her completely staged uh, that they were made to do that and uh, many hostages uh, during a meeting with the military this week urged them not to send the idf into the tunnels they said that the tunnels are wired and booby-trapped and dangerous, and it would be uh, it would be a disaster disaster if the IDF itself went into the tunnels. Which I find interesting that we're actually getting intelligence from former hostages. Um, and just to circle back to an earlier point, you know, the chief of staff Halevi, when he said to the IDF that we should not fire upon anyone who has their hands up in the air. He made clear that one reason for doing this is not just the IDF's code of ethics, but also that we can get very valuable intelligence from anyone we capture. And I think that was a good point to bring up. I think that was sort of a softer way. It didn't sound so accusatory. It actually meant like this is something we can do to help the cause. And, uh, and I agree with that. The IDF has captured a number of Hamas operatives in the past few weeks, and we are getting a lot of intelligence from them. Um, but that's where we stand on the hostage front, the IDF. And I think it's also good that Herzog, the president, has publicly declared that Israel welcomes a truce. You know, the world is crying ceasefire and the U.N. again is scheduled to vote on a ceasefire. And I think that Israel can say, yes, we welcome some sort of pause in the operation uh, in exchange for our troops. Um, I think that's that's good. It makes Israel you know, seem like we are actually uh, interested in some sort of a negotiation. Not that the world's opinion would necessarily change. I don't think it would. But I still nonetheless think it's good that Herzog came out and said that. So the final little story I want to share with you, and I think someone is off of mute. So if you could please make sure your microphones are, if you are muted, muted please. So the final little story I want to share with you is that uh, that building collapse that happened when nine soldiers were killed. I actually knew about that incident about 10 hours before anyone else in Israel and certainly anyone else here. And I'm not saying, to, saying that to brag about the great intel I have. I'm telling it to you because it actually came to me in a very indirect uh, but interesting way. My wife, Dorit, back in Israel, has been working a lot uh, as a volunteer, doing volunteer work with a number of organizations, including the IDF. And she's hooked up with some platoons serving in Gaza and on the border with Gaza, sending them everything from uh, 500 pair of underwear she was able to ship down a couple of weeks ago to foot cream. You know, foot cream might sound like... Uh, why would you need that? It's because these guys have their boots on all the time. They uh, they do not take their boots off, and so they to keep you know healthy their feet healthy. They need to use foot cream. So she's shipping that down there. Also arranging for desserts and food and hot meals to be shipped down to these troops. And so she's actually made friends with a lot of very high up uh, logistics officers in the IDF that come by our apartment and pick up the goods and make uh, the arrangements for how to get the rest of the stuff down there. And um, so we, she actually has very close contacts in the IDF. And last week um, on Wednesday, one of the, these officers that she deals with came by our apartment and was sitting with her 
and said that there had been a big incident in Gaza and told her exactly what happened. And it hadn't been released to the press yet. And um, especially the army had not yet notified the families of the victims. And so that's why it wasn't released. But the point of this story is that all of these officers who are coming by my apartment to sit with Dorit, they're all telling her the same thing. They have 24 hours off from Gaza. They're leaving Gaza from 24 hours, and they say to them, they say to Dorit, I cannot go home. They don't go home to their families. They have, many of them, wives and children. Those who are unmarried have parents. But they are not going home to see them. Instead, they're sitting in my apartment and talking to Dorit. And those of you who know Dorit know that she's an excellent listener and a great conversationalist. And uh, people open up to her naturally. But these officers in the IDF are speaking to her for hours about the experiences they're going through. But they are not going home to see their own families during their 24-hour leave from Gaza. And the reason, they said, is that if they do, they know they can't go back to Gaza. They know that if they see their wives, if they see their children, they will literally be unable to pry themselves away and go back into the war zone. So they actually, even though they have 24 hours off from the army, they find it easier to not go home. Uh, I think it's one of the ripple effects that we need to take into consideration is just how much this war is affecting the soldiers who are there right now. There's a lot of death and destruction happening in Gaza. We, of course, are trying to limit civilian casualties as much as we can, but that's impossible to do. And the soldiers of ours, the IDF soldiers who are killing both Hamas operatives and civilians, whether it's uh, on purpose, if it's Hamas, or accidentally, if it's a civilian, that is affecting our soldiers psychologically. And that is something we need to take into account as well. And their entire lives after this will be different after this war. So that idea of I cannot go home is something that's very poignant to me. As we see soldiers who are actually choosing not to see their own families, instead, they'd rather keep a distance because they know it would be impossible to go back into the battle if they actually do see their family. I'm going to take your questions in a second. Now, I really don't want to do this, but I do need to call a couple of people out. I'm going to ask you to please mute your microphones. It turns out that Wendy Rosenthal and Lynn Abrams, please, for the sake of all of us, mute yourselves, okay? Because we're hearing uh, stuff going on in the background and um, it's distracting for everyone. So please put yourselves on mute. Okay. So... Let's do a quick recap of some of the other things happening in Israel right now, and then I get to your questions. The war. Right now, it's uh, it looks like the IDF does have full control of Jabalaya. I mentioned Jabalaya before. That is where in 2014 we lost seven Golani soldiers. It's also where the building was ambushed last week. But now the IDF has full control of Jabalaya, and in a symbolic gesture— they destroyed a monument. What monument did they destroy? Well, in a square called Palestine Square in the middle of Jabalaya, there was a monument commemorating the deaths of the killings of the seven Golani soldiers in 2014. It was an APC, an armored personnel carrier with a fist being punched through it, uh, praising the heroism of Hamas for killing these seven Golani soldiers and Golani soldiers this past week destroyed that monument in a symbol of our control of Jabalaya. So this is a good thing for the Israeli army. We've also, so many of you in past sessions have asked about flooding the tunnels. And the answer is yes, we actually have begun flooding the tunnels. At this point, it's been more of an experiment. We've wanted to see if it's actually possible, what would happen, is it effective, can we get the seawater through our five pumps down into the tunnels. The IDF is being very secretive about this because they do not want Hamas to know what's coming and what's coming next. But all they have said is that it is an effective tool and we might expect to see more of this in the future. Now, on that front of the tunnels, this past week the IDF discovered the largest tunnel it has seen so far. It is 50 meters below ground, just about 135 feet 
below ground. This is below the water level. And what IDF intelligence officers are saying, they've used the word impressive, not in a good way, but impressive in the sense that Hamas's technology clearly, once again, that idea of failure of imagination, we did not realize that they had the skill, the know-how, and the technology to drill tunnels of this size. All the other tunnels were concrete reinforced, large enough for motor scooters to get through. This tunnel, we actually have footage of Sinwar, the head of Hamas in Gaza, riding through the tunnel in a car. It is large enough for cars to go through. There's a communications system set up that does not use the internet so they can talk with their communications not being tapped. And this is uh, th this is sort of mind-blowing to Israel that there is such a large tunnel network coming off of this large feeder tunnel that leads up to 400 meters from the border with Israel. So uh, this is one of the ways probably that Hamas was able to get to the Israeli border through this huge tunnel. And already the IDF is making plans for how to destroy it. Uh, but it does show you that uh, Hamas was busy at work all this time building this entire tunnel network. And we uh, we knew about it, but perhaps not to the extent that we should have. And uh, this is more than just you know, Hamas operatives with guns. This is, you know, engineering students who are studying in university in Gaza, engineering, and then using their know-how to build these tunnels. Uh, it's getting the digging equipment. There's boring equipment that was used that's uh, that's very rare and specialized. So uh, again, the word is impressive that the IDF used when describing uh, this elaborate and uh, large and very deep, well-constructed metal it's made of steel fortified uh, tunnel. So this actually leads to a question that I'm going to answer. Uh, many, I'm going to read your questions in a minute that you've put in the chat. But uh, some of you wrote in, and I always love it when you write in ahead of time because it makes it logistically easier and it also shows me what's on your mind. And this question relates very much to what I just talked about. So someone wrote in saying, to be honest with you, I'm against Israel's scorched earth policy in Gaza, referring to the huge bombing campaign that's destroying so much infrastructure and also killing many civilians. What this person wrote is, it's not turning the people against Hamas. If anything, it's taking innocent lives and it's sowing more anger against Israel. So could I address that? And I'll actually address this with two, uh, with two answers. First of all, I don't necessarily agree that it is not sowing anger at Hamas. I think more and more we're starting to discover that, yes, in the West Bank, support for Hamas is up over 300% since October 7th. But in Gaza, it does seem like there is a tide turning, like people are beginning to turn against Hamas. More and more video is circulating of Hamas looting and stealing aid that is destined for ordinary Gazan civilians. We're discovering and publicizing money that Hamas members have been stashing away. A uh, million dollars, I think, was discovered this past week in a suitcase. Um, receipts for jewelry, I mentioned last time. Uh, so the people in Gaza, I think, are there's a chance that they really are starting to turn a little bit against Hamas and a very senior member of the Palestinian Authority actually said that we all need to rethink Hamas's role that this destruction cannot be put fully on Israel that Hamas has a role some of the blame must be put on them for all the destruction happening in Gaza right now. Now, that could be the PA also jockeying for their leadership role over the Palestinian people. But I think it is telling. And I think we we actually have video also of Gazans who are yelling about uh, Hamas and who are angry that Hamas is stealing the food destined for them. And uh, it could be that, uh, well, I don't necessarily agree that it's not necessarily turning some of the uh, Gazans against against Hamas itself. And so uh, Yiftah, who's always such a great participant, wrote in that it was five million shekels in suitcases, which is over a million dollars that they'd stashed away. The other thing I want to mention is that, so you mentioned the scorched earth policy, indiscriminate bombing and killing innocent people. 
I just want to bring another story to light, which I think is very important. The director of the, I hope I pronounced this right, um, Kamal Adam Hospital, his name is Ahmed Kalot. This is in Gaza. So it's basically a director of a large hospital in Gaza. He was captured this week and questioned by the Shin Bet, which is the Israeli Internal Security Service. And he said that he himself is a member of the armed militant brigade of Hamas. He also said that many of the doctors and nurses on staff at his and his hospital are members of the militant wing of Hamas. And they're also conspiring with Hamas to let them use certain rooms in the hospital for operations. They use rooms in the hospital to hide weapons and explosives. We have video this week of the IDF describing the IDF discovering explosives had been hidden inside an incubator made for babies in the intensive care unit. It's a, a small incubator made for a child who needs oxygen, and they were hiding explosives in there as well. So why do I bring this up? I bring it up because I want everyone to realize that there really is no such paradigm as Hamas, no Hamas when we talk about the population in Gaza. I think instead we need to think of the population in Gaza as a Venn diagram with two intersecting circles. And on one edge of one of the circles are the real Hamas militants in leadership who are launching rockets and carrying guns. And at the other end, in one of those other circles not intersecting, would be the ordinary civilians, the children who are not involved. But it seems more and more like there is a very large intersection of those two circles that involves people who are both citizens and Hamas. And the fact that a director of the hospital and doctors and nurses in his own hospital are, membered of, are members of the armed brigades of Hamas shows you just how many people in Gaza are involved. So when you say scorched earth, you know, scorched earth policy, indiscriminately bombing, I think a lot of the innocent civilians that have been killed, certainly some of them are innocent. Don't get me wrong. But I think a significant number of them might not be so innocent. And this just points to you how difficult this war is. We are not fighting a conventional army that has uniforms and bases and obeys the international rules of war. We are fighting an army that embeds itself among the civilian population, dresses as civilians, learns and speaks Hebrew so that when convenient to them, they can use Hebrew to lure our soldiers into traps. This is a very difficult and complicated scenario for the IDF. And I personally don't believe that it is simply indiscriminate bombing. I think the bombing has a purpose. Uh, the IDF has been as outspoken as it can to try to tell where the bombing will happen, in what neighborhoods, at what times. Very few militaries in the world would do that. And the reason we're bombing so much is we need to, we need to remove the sniper threat. We need to make we need to allow our ground troops to operate freely. We see what happens when there are buildings. When there are buildings, they get booby-trapped and our soldiers get ambushed. We need to remove that threat. This is not just a war on the traditional land, sea, and air. It's also underground as well. And the fact that we have that fourth front means that we need to treat what's above ground very cautiously. And if that means bombing a lot to clear a path for our ground troops, I think that is the path that we've we've had to take. So I just wanted to address that question. Another question that someone wrote in. Wow, there's all these other stories I wanted to mention, but we're not going to have time for has uh, someone asked me why I advocate for a Palestinian state. Um, OK, that's a very that's a hard question, but. You know, most Israelis do not advocate for a Palestinian state right now, and I don't right now. Uh, I think we need a new Palestinian authority. We need to get rid of Hamas. But why do I feel, and I do, I, why do I feel that a two-state solution is the only solution here? I'll tell you why. It's because we need separation. And every Israeli agrees that we need separation from 
the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. We see what happened when there is not clear separation. We had thousands of Hamas citizens, uh, of uh, Gazan citizens coming into Israel to work, and it turns out they were spying and discovering the layouts of our army bases in Kibbutzim. We can't have this fluid situation where the borders are not defined and where the populations are not defined. You know, and every other country has this. U.S. has it with Canada and Mexico. This is not an unusual thing for a country to have borders that are defined. Everyone makes a big deal about it when Israel starts proposing it, but we we need this. We need separation. So ultimately, that is why I want a state for the Palestinian people, because they need to be separate from us. And I think part of the question was why I even call them Palestinian people if there was no Palestine before there was Israel. You know what? I, I really feel like it doesn't matter. Like the reality is there are millions of people who call themselves Palestinian. And for Israel's sake, for our own sake, we need separation from them. There's also the demographic issue. We don't ever want to get in a situation where there are more non-Jews than Jews between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, because then we really could face a prospect of us trying to rule over a majority when we're a minority. We need to separate from them. And I don't think a state for the Palestinian people is the right move right now. They are not ready, and we're certainly not emotionally. But separation is needed eventually for our own sake. I, I think it's hard to argue with that. I want to take some questions that you've written in. Can I please do this call for longer than one hour? People will stay. Well, I mean, if enough people write me and say that you'll stay for an hour, I will. But um, I'm actually doing a session with teenagers right after this. I'm doing a session at uh, 8 o'clock Eastern with teens who went to Israel this past summer and want some insight into what life for teenagers is like. So uh, I would consider going over an hour. Um, but uh, thank you for that compliment. Do civilians join Hamas voluntarily, or is it due to fear of reprisals if they don't? Well, that's a great question. I don't know, personally, but I do know that it's very hard to be anti-Hamas. It's very hard to be outspoken against Hamas in Gaza. Remember, Hamas controls a lot. They delve out the money. They are the ones who handle the civil administration as well. So not only is it difficult to be against them, people need Hamas, but I also have a feeling that people want to voluntarily. You know, another thing that IDF soldiers came across this week is children. Children in Gaza dressed up in uniforms, Hamas uniforms with Hamas headbands and uh, fake weapons. And, you know, I mean, they Hamas provides summer camp for children to train to hate Israel and kill Israelis. So Hamas is indoctrinating from a young age. So how much is it is voluntarily and how much of it is just so much in the DNA and in the water of life in Gaza that they don't really have a choice? Well, that's a possibility too. But my main takeaway is that the innocent Gazans might not all be as innocent as we think. Another question people had, maybe I can take one more. I heard that there are 70,000 Hamas and 7,000 killed. At what point will the IDF consider Hamas destroyed, as, as they've stated, is their end goal? You know, obviously, we are not going to be able to kill every final, last Hamas member. However, I, the number I've heard is 25 to 30,000 Hamas militants, and that we've killed between five and 10,000. Now, take into account that some of those civilians may also be members of Hamas, and we've killed them as well. I don't think Israel's ultimate goal is a body count. I don't think we're going to stop when we've reached a certain number and said, ah, we've gotten them. I think it's more about knowing that the tunnel network is not usable. We have to know that those tunnels cannot be used anymore. We also know that we've taken away their capability to, ro to launch rockets at Israel, all of Israel, not just central Israel, but the South as well. When people are comfortable moving to the South, then we will know that we have taken away Hamas's ability. Now, what is the day after? You know, a poll came out this week, and I wanted to share this with you, but we're kind of out of time. But two-thirds of Israelis believe, well, two-thirds of Israelis actually believe two things. Two-thirds of Israelis believe that the government has not made clear what the plan is for the day after. And I would agree with that. We don't know what the plan is for the day after. But also, two-thirds of Israelis have said that they want elections 
immediately after the war. Now, the next elections in Israel are not for another three years, if you go on schedule, but two-thirds of Israelis want elections immediately after the war. And polls have found that if those elections were held now, Benny Gantz by far would be the prime minister, that uh, Betzalel Smotrich, who was the finance minister, would not even be in the government, although nor would labor, which is so hard to believe because remember Israel had labor governments until I believe it was 19, the early eighties, perhaps uh, all governments were labor. Uh, so now that labor is kind of irrelevant is shocking. I wouldn't be surprised if they come back by joining up with Benny Gantz. But right now, if elections were to be held, it would be the uh, Benny Gantz's party and he would be prime minister and Likud would fall to, I think, 44 seats, far below what it has right now. Now, you have to ask, does Netanyahu have motivation to keep this war going? Because people are saying we want elections after the war. I think if Netanyahu were running this war alone, that suspicion would be a lot higher. But the fact that we have Eisenkot and Gantz in the war cabinet with him I think reassures a lot of us that the war is being run properly. Um, I should also mention that one of the stories going around Israel right now is that Netanyahu has been complaining about the name of the war. He feels that Swords of Iron is not an appropriate name, that it's the name of an operation, but not a war. And he's advocating for calling it the Milchemet Simchat Torah, the Simchat Torah war, which I don't know. I think that kind of ruins the idea of Simchat Torah, although one could argue that Yom Kippur hasn't been ruined by calling it the Yom Kippur War. But in any case, I don't think the war will change its name anytime soon. I would also say that is the least of our worries at the moment. So I want to thank all of you for joining. We have a wonderful audience, consistently over 100, 100 to 150 people with another 100 watching or listening online later. It means a lot to me. If there are questions you have, if there's something from this broadcast that is missing that you would like to see, go ahead and drop me a note through my website, joelchaznoff.com, or just email joel at joelchaznoff.com, and I will do my best to answer your questions and make the changes that need to change to make this better and more enjoyable and insightful for you. For now, rak b'shalom, peace for all of us, and a good week. The heat road, everyone. Inside Israel is produced by 188th Crybaby Productions, Incorporated. Episodes are recorded online before a live audience. To get the links to future recordings, sign up at joelchaznoff.com slash podcast. If you have questions, comments, or to give feedback, and I know with all those Jewish listeners out there, you have feedback, drop us a note at joel at joelchaznoff.com. To learn more about me, my comedy, and books, and to sign up for my newsletter, Hebrew is Magic, you can do that at joelchaznoff.com. Thanks for listening.